Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat, the FT's business and economics podcast. I'm Shannon Bond. Cardiff Garcia is away in Havana working on his tan. We've got a great lineup this week. Sherry Turkle, a psychologist and MIT professor, stops by to talk about how our addictions to our gadgets are making it harder for us to actually have conversations. Then, two of my colleagues join me to figure out if the multi-billion dollar valuations for companies like Uber, Snapchat, and Square make any sense. And finally, a preview of our latest Alpha Chatterbox, our long-form podcast. Cardiff sat down with development economist Esther Duflo to talk about foreign aid and global poverty. It's a good one, so stick around. Sherry Turkle has been studying how we use technology and how it's changing us for 30 years. Her latest book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, came out just last month. Sherry's here in our New York studio to talk about why we need to put down our phones and actually talk to each other. Thanks so much for joining us today. So, Sherry, you spent years studying, you know, how technology influences our lives, how we interact with technology, how we've really been changed by technology. And your new book, um, you're arguing that with our devices, in a lot of ways, we've, we've traded conversation for those digital connections. And as a result, we've lost some things, empathy, self-reflection, or we're at risk of losing these capacities. We've turned to technology to replace what we get from ourselves and from each other. So tell why. Why is that happening? What's going on? Well, it's a it's a it's sad, actually, because there's nobody who invented these wonderful phones who said, I know, let's make an anti-empathy machine. That would be so devious. On the contrary, these phones come to us with gifts as though from a benevolent genie. And it turns out that like any fairy tale where you get gifts from a benevolent genie, there's a price. So right, there's strings attached. There's strings attached. So, for example, you'll never have to be bored. Well, it turns out that boredom is your imagination calling to you. Boredom is a time when your brain is not bored at all. It's laying down um, connections that are critical to your sense of a stable self. So we don't want to be bored anymore. Our phones make it that we can never be bored, but we've lost um, something very important, that capacity to be alone with ourselves. There's a new study that shows that after six minutes of sitting alone with their thoughts, college students begin to give, each, uh, give uh, self-administer electroshocks rather just than have, have moments of boredom. But just to have something Just to some have stimulus? something stimulation. So that's one thing. And our phones say to us, you can always be heard. Um, But it turns out that always being heard doesn't mean that anyone is listening. So we get used to always being heard and broadcasting, but we forget how important it is to be in a conversation where we're being empathic and listening and developing 
those skills. Our phone tell us we can be wherever we want to be. We can put our attention wherever we want to be. And yet, in my research, I find that what that ends what ends up happening is that if you put your phone on a on the table between two people who are having lunch, uh, two things happen: the, the, the conversation becomes trivial, and people feel less of a sense of empathic connection toward each other because they their attention can be really elsewhere. So the phone is almost like a third party, right? Yes, taking them away. Exactly. So really, what's happened? I mean, in a nutshell, to sum all this up, is our, our phones offer us these these gifts, but each of these gifts, each of these promises take us away from something that's humanly important. We didn't intend for it to happen, but now it's taken us some time to see that it's happened, and it's time to to take stock and to do something about it. So you started working on this book sort of with the initial idea, you say, was that you were, yeah. you were interested in how we text and how we message. Yeah. Um, but it turned into a different project along yes. the way. What happened? Well... My original idea was to really do a kind of micro-analysis of, you know, texting and messaging and how Gchat was different from texting, <laughs> of all the different ways. And I interviewed um, a group of college students to whom I was kind of a focus group, to whom I explained my plan. Mm -hmm. And a young man said to me, he said, Professor Turkle, that is not what you should be studying. He said, our texts are fine. What's the, what's the trouble is, is what our texts are doing to our conversations when we're together. So they're That's, drawing a difference between the way we communicate to get, like right exactly, here across this table exactly, and how I, how I write, write an email or yes. a Gchat. He basically said, you know, our texts are fine, our Gchats are fine. All of that is, is adding to our stock of ways of communicating. And I came to agree with him. The trouble is... And the story is what all of that texting, what all of those ways around conversation are doing to the quality and our ability to have conversations with each other when we're together. And then he began, that same man um, began to talk to me about what it's like to go to dinner in the dining hall of his college. This was really was sort of, right. I mean, I'm not, I feel like these people are not that much younger than me, but it felt shocking, this, this description he right. gave. And so he, he described what he called the rule of three, but then many other people described a variant on this, and I began to observe it as I began to study this. The rule of three is, let's say you're six at dinner, and everybody wants to be able to text so They all want to have eat. their phone in their lap. Absolutely. Their They're not willing to put down their phone during dinner. So they want to have their phone, but they want to be with their friends too. So you have to wait for three people to have their heads up talking before you put your head down to text. So it's called the rule of three, or sometimes the rule of two, if right. you're willing to put your head down when only two people are talking. So what this does is that it, it, it keeps the conversation light because right. it has to be on topics where you can put your head down while other people are check in and check back out. <laughs> exactly. And but it also has that other effect of of undermining your empathic connection with the other people who you're eating with. Because you know you're you're there with them, you care about them, but you really are not listening to their story. You're not doing that thing where you're really trying to get into their head, really trying to put yourself in their place, because you want to be able to check out, right? to look up uh, 
score or you know the starting time for a movie there might be something more interesting to talk to on your phone exactly or there or there might be something more interesting on your phone but you kind of can't i don't know i can't imagine doing that you know in in this conversation we're having here i mean it does seem so rude are we seeing it sort of a shifting in in our social absolutely what's not that's just because we're old fogies (laughs) we're old fogies and we're on the radio i mean it's the only it's the only thing, but because 89% of Americans, in a study that I didn't do, in a study that the Pew Foundation did, 89% of Americans report that in their last conversation, they took out a phone. Mm-hmm. And 82% said that it diminished the conversation, and they did it anyway. Right. So we know it's bad for us, We know, but we keep doing it. Yes, and there are many things about the way in which we use our phones where we know it's bad for us, and we do it anyway. And thats I would say that that is the sort of theme of reclaiming conversation and why the book is optimistic in a, in a kind of <laughs> sort of funny, <laughs> not perverse way, but sort of in its own special way. You think that, there's still hope? Because it's a book of unhappy campers. I mean, it's a book of people who are doing things where they feel, you know, I am not at peace with this now. Right. I've been doing this for five, six years I'm kind of gotten used to it, but you know, this is not, this is not right. Right. This isn't sort of a prescription you're giving us saying, hey, we're doing these things and they're bad for you. You're actually, this is, you're reporting what you heard people telling you they wanted to do something differently. Yes. They wanted to to go back to a different way of And that's why when people said, oh, don't call it reclaiming conversation, that will seem romantic, that will seem retro, will seem, you know, natural, you know, kind of looking to a natural past that never was. I really stuck to my guns because it was, it was my informants. I mean, it was the people I w- was interviewing who said, "I want to reclaim. Con- I want to. I want something that I, I, I think I can still do." Right. So, I mean, my favorite example. I've got to say, you know, it's sort of author's choice. My favorite example is, I mean, this is from the from personal life, not mm-hmm. business life, because there are many examples that I hope we'll talk about from business mm-hmm. life. But my favorite example from personal life is this guy who had an 11-year-old daughter. And when she was a a toddler, he gave her baths. And he remembers the conversations when she was in the bathtub as like the conversations that laid down their relationship. And and now he has a 2-year-old. And when he's giving her a bath, he puts her in the bath. He makes sure she's safe. He makes sure the water level's okay. He puts down the toilet seat, and he does his email on his iPhone. Right. And he tells me the story. And he's not, they're not talking. They're not talking. And he says, I'm not okay with this. And I'm not okay with this. This is, and I'm, I become, am I the researcher? Am I the therapist? Am I, you know, my role You're a little bit of everything. (laughs) I'm a little bit of everything. But basically he's telling me I want to reclaim conversation. He's looking for a moment. He's looking for a place to start. And I think that's where we are as a culture. Mm Our humor is starting to be about that. Our talk is starting to be about that. There's this unbelievably funny New Yorker cartoon that shows a guy at a party, you know, with a cone around his head, <laughs> you know. That, so that he can't look down so at the phone, So that he can't phone, look right? down at his phone. I mean, I think we're, we're starting to, to, to see the human cost. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not, I, I found kids who told me their parents had never walked with them to the, to the store. Well, I was also so struck by, I mean, of course, there's a generation that remembers what we've lost. But yeah. your point about actually a generation that they don't even necessarily, you know, they haven't, 
they don't know they've lost this, but they know they don't have it in a way. Yes. You know, they didn't have it to lose, but they realize there's an absence there. Yes. You, I mean, you, and you quote these kids saying, I don't want to raise my kids the way I'm being raised. I want to raise them the way my parents think they're raising me. Yes. I mean, that just sent a chill down my back. Yes, and that actually was not, you know, one of the rules, I'm a qualitative methodologist, which means I talk to people, I'm a fly on the wall, and one of the rules for doing that kind of work is that you don't report anything unless you have what's called a deep bench. You know, you don't just report something because one kid said Right, it's not you know, an anecdotal. It's not anecdotal. I mean, yeah. I'm systematic. I mean, I'm, I'm reporting qualitative, right. reporting stories, but... If it was just one kid, it wouldn't it wouldn't land. It wouldn't ring true. Right. This is really the the sentiment of a generation that grew up. And now, for people who can't watch what I'm doing, I'm tugging at my sleeve. I mean, who right. grew up tugging at their parents' sleeve, saying, "You know, pay attention to me. Right. Pay attention to me." So they don't they don't quite know what to call it. They're not calling it reclaiming conversation. They they just know that they didn't have their parents' attention. They talk about. You know, we go on vacation and my mom, you know, wants to go home because the Wi-Fi isn't good enough. You know, I, I want to take a walk with my dad to on the beach and he has his phone with him. I want to watch Sunday sports with him and, the, and, and, his, and his tablet is open and he's doing his email and I, he really isn't paying attention to the game. And um, They have a feeling that something should be different. Something, is, should, be, different something of, should be different. Yeah. And so when people say to me, oh, you know... Um, you you can't get it back because kids growing up who've never had it, they won't remember it. I think that it's almost as though children don't need to remember. Mm-hmm. They know they're not getting something that they need. Right. And right. they they want that. And and that is their parents' attention. Nobody ever had their parents' <laughs> full attention. But they're not But it's gotten worse in a way. Well they they don't know it's gotten worse. They know that they're not they know they're not getting any mm-hmm. alone time with their parents. And and you see products coming out that speak to that. There's a baby bouncer that has a slot for an iPad. There's a potty trainer that has a slot for an iPad. Now, you know, I, 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 I joke that I have a favorite line in my book, which is technology makes us forget what we know about life. And I, I think it's my favorite line for a reason. Technology makes us forget what we know about life. Any parent knows that that when your child is 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 in the reverie of bouncing of toddlering of of being on a potty trainer these are the moments in which there's reverie there's imagination mm-hmm. there's quiet there's solitude but there's conversation there's comforting conversation there's being with that's not the time to be on a screen right it doesn't need to be mediated it doesn't have to be mediated in that way so you talk about about conversations in all phases of our life with our families, with ourselves, with our friends and our romantic partners. You also talk about the workplace. Yes. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the role of real conversation at work. What's the business case for having face-to-face interactions? Well, conversation is good for the bottom line. There are these magnificent studies by Ben Weber who actually put sociometric badges on people. So these are like little devices Little devices that measured uh, – the quality, the spacing, the time, the tonality of conversations in the workplace. And he found that when workers talk together, their productivity went up. Um, and Even what we might think of as sort of idle passing chatter, you run into something Idle in the passing chatter, because yeah. it turns out idle passing chatter is chatter about what's happening at work. 
Um, and I think that the business case for conversation is compelling. And the trouble is, is that in the work in some of the workplaces I studied, I mean, in, in most dramatically at a workplace I studied where everything was set up to respect that. Mm -hmm. The tables were set up to be the right size for conversation. The cafeteria lines were set up to be the right size for conversation. There was also a competing value that you should always be on your email. You should right. be always looking at the feed. So you're getting a mixed message. You're getting a mixed that you, message. That you should be collaborating, but you really can never actually concentrate on one thing. Yes. Because you always have to be available for what might come up. Yes. That we're so busy communicating that we don't have time for conversation about the things that really matter. And so the message about conversation has to be a message that leaders both believe in and act on, and, and act on in the smallest of their mundane activities mm -hmm. in the day-to-day. -day. That is, you know, if you, if you send out an email at 2 o'clock in the morning and you don't make it clear that it's okay to answer that email the following day, right. you will wreak havoc. Right, because, because your employee doesn't know, right? Doesn't they don't, know. They, and then they, they feel a pressure on them. And exactly. It snowballs from so there. So it has to come from leaders. You have to design for conversation. You have to make sacred spaces in your mm -hmm. office place that leaves room that is sort of device-free where, where you value conversation. But, but more than that, you have to... You have to make sure that everyone understands that conversation in your business is not competing with being attentive to the continual feed. Right. Now, I want to go back to the idea, though, that, that the conversation is, is what makes us really productive. Because yes. I think a lot of us have now, we've really internalized this idea that our technology makes us productive. Right. right? It's the fact that I can be in a meeting and be responsive to messages. You know, I can be multitasking. I can be available to reply to my email at two in the morning. Right. Uh, so how do we redefine productivity then to, to take us back in the direction of understanding that there are other ways to, to, to think about what we're doing with our time? Well, first let's unpack this question. Multitasking is a myth. Right. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a myth because we don't multitask. We do one thing at a time. And for every... So it's just in little fragments yes, as opposed we fragment, to... Yes, we fragment our attention and, okay. and all of the studies done over and over again until, you know, to make this point until even the most, you know, beating down, even the most recalcitrant um, have shown that you that here's the terrible part of the myth of multitasking, and it too has a sort of fairy tale quality of uh, twist, is that the more you multitask, the more you think you're doing better and better at every task you multitask. But your brain is fooling you because you're doing worse and worse with every task you add. So you have the feeling of becoming more and more a sort of master or mistress right. of the universe. Because you're thinking, I'm getting all this done. You're it's getting great. all of this done. It's and fine. not just am I getting all of this done, I'm getting better and better at everything. And in fact, your performance is degrading every time you add a new task. Is so that because we're not benchmarking? I mean, we don't have something to benchmark it against. We, we no longer have un, un, uninterrupted tasks that we're doing? No, it's or, because our brain responds ourselves. to multitasking as though we were in the wild uh, seeking, looking for deer right. in, a, in, a, in a sort of uh, Darwinian str struggle for the fittest. 
and as though it's better to look for more and more deer, even though we're doing worse and worse at looking for all the hunting, right. doing all the hunting, it's better to be looking for more and more deer because there's starvation. I right. mean, it, we literally <laughs> are, I mean, it, something kicks in that is, um, that, that is really unproductive. And, um, so multitasking, first of all, uh, which, which is activated, this high, this, this high for multitasking is activated every time you do a Google search. Mm-hmm. You know, your brain doesn't know the difference between hunting for that deer and doing a Google search. So you get, you get that burst of you get that burst. excitement or fulfillment, so validation. You're fighting against, that's why, that's why Reclaiming Conversation, I think, is such a sympathetic book. I mean, mm-hmm. it tries to take such a sympathetic look at all of this because we're really, we're kind of fighting against, you know, what our own biology is inappropriately triggering in mm-hmm. us. So relax. Unitasking is the next big thing in education, in business, doing one thing at a time. Th- that is where the winners are going to be. Right. And we see evidence of that now when you interview CEOs, when you interview, I mean, I love Zadie Smith and her right. last novel. The writer. Right. The, the writer. Thanks. She thanks the program Freedom that turns off the Wi-Fi on her Mac because she was able to get the book done. So people who are successful turn out to do one thing at a time. So that's the first thing, is that um, go to unitasking and train yourself. And, of course, education has a big part to play here. We have to, educators, professors, high school teachers, elementary school teachers, we also... All of us in education have to get over our infatuation with multitasking, right. with windows. In the classroom. In the classroom. In, 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 in the midst of the presentation. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Things are being increasingly taught in, in these formats. I mean, you talk about a professor might be giving a lecture, but then on a screen behind them, there's a feed where the students can sort of respond in real time, right? Absolutely. But this is actually distracting. Yes. But it's very natural. Right. But again, I'm very sympathetic. It's very natural. You have all these toys. Right. And you think, well, this is magnificent. I can be showing four things at once, and this is exciting. And well, it also gives us a sense that we're engaging, right? Yes. I mean, the student, if everyone, you know, throughout the whole classroom, like every couple of seconds, right. a student is participating. But that doesn't mean a single student is actually sustaining attention throughout or the thinking. hour. Yeah. Or thinking. The question is, what do you want the students to be doing? You right. want them to be... Thinking. I mean, actually, there's one story I, I, I particularly love, which is of a, uh, of a Harvard Law School professor who allowed her students to take notes on the computer during, during classes. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out that when students take notes on their computers, they, they transcribe the class. They don't think. Right. They're they not just, processing They're the not processing. They just transcribe the class. Mm-hmm. They turn themselves into court stenographers. Mm-hmm. And, and she finally said, well, I found my students getting more and more irritated if I interrupted them to ask a question because I was interrupting <laughs> their perfect transcription. Right, right. And so, you know, again, who knew? Who knew? We had no experience with this technology. Right. But but now and then we they're know. bringing those students na- then are graduating and bringing those habits and those, exactly. those patterns into the workplace. Exactly. And in the workplace, I go to meetings where people basically sit at meetings and do their email. Right. I'm sure we're and, all guilty. We've all done that well, at some point. You sit in a, but, but it becomes a norm. You right. sit in a meeting, you do your email, and a good meeting leader is said to be somebody who five minutes before you're supposed to talk kind of gives you a signal to close down your email to get ready for your presentation. 
So the meeting becomes a kind of group email session Mm -hmm. where when you're speaking, you're speaking to a room full of people who are doing their email. We can do better than this. This is not, this isn't progress. Right. So the idea that we're doing work when we're, you know, at, at, at our, you know, at our, at our screens plugged into this is, is, is a, is a story we've told ourselves because we feel more in control mm-hmm. when we're at our screens doing our email, you know, checking things off. Right. And a big part, I mean, to get back to your, I, 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 I diverged a little from your original question, a big part of why we allow ourselves to tell ourselves this story is because we feel overwhelmed. Right. So much is coming in, more than we can handle, that we want to stay at our screens because we don't think we can handle it unless we stay at our screens. People are terrified of a telephone call. Right. People well, you are, have to react in real time. You can't, you can't compose yourself. Well, and the person might go on and on. <laughs> Who right. knows right. how long right. that call might take. Right. I mean, you could just keep me on the phone for 20 minutes. Right. But the flip side of that is then we, you're, you're in your device, you're on your screen, and you're, you're sucked in for an hour And when you meant to sort of you know, quickly check on something. I mean, we go through those cycles you know, on your phone, your email, Facebook, Twitter. And but you that's kind of not how people rotation. experience it. Yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting is that people experience time on their devices as time when they are in control of their time. And that's because it's so structured in a particular they way. They feel that that is time over which they have control, as opposed to a call during which they share control. Right. Now, in fact, they they lose themselves in the seduction of the device right. and in the seduction of the next ad, and one thing leads to another. But the the feeling psychologically is that you are in control of your world if you don't let another person in. Right. There are clearly technological ways that we can actually use to help us kind of bring some of this focus and conversation back into our lives, whether at work or at home. I mean, what are this? What are some of the other ways, um, you know, concrete steps we can take to actually reclaim conversation? Well, I think that I'm not one for um, counting hours. I think that that's very artificial. You know, so mm-hmm. many hours I do this, so many hours I do that. I think it's much more uh, helpful to have spaces. Mm-hmm. Where you don't use devices, so I think so to like for, map that map out a physical space where yes. I say my phone doesn't come with me. Yes, so I think, and this is something that I really have had uh, people don't want to hear this, but I'm <laughs> saying it any I'm saying it anyway. But I know that <laughs> it's going to be it's not popular. I don't. I think phone should not be your alarm clock mm-hmm. because uh, it interrupts sleep. Mm-hmm. Right, you uh, roll over and you can just check don't it quickly. Sleep. It, you don't check it quickly. You start right. to check your text. Right. One of the, I mean, in the deep psychology of texting, which is really something that I, I really must say that now I understand is, you know, why people are so drawn to their phones and why they need to see their texts. Um, people want to know who are, who's reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. One person said it's where the sweetness is. It's where that sense of being wanted is. Right. Now, if you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and there's your phone, you reach for it. Right. You want to see who has reached out to you. That doesn't go away at 2 o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden it's 4 o'clock in the right. morning. 
Right. And, and in interview them. after interview with teenagers and with not teenagers, people are talking about it's 2 o'clock in the morning and then it's 5 a.m. and mm-hmm. then it's 6 and it's mm-hmm. no use to sleep anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how we live now. Yeah. And the biggest help that a parent can do for their child is to say, here is an alarm clock. Right. You know, you and the phone and the phone stays downstairs, mm-hmm. and and not out of punishment, but really because, in the same way as you say at dinner, I need to talk to you, mm-hmm. is that you really need your sleep mm-hmm. in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the dining room, in the car. A very important sacred space for families. You know, you you're not texting if you're mm-hmm. driving. Nobody's texting, right. and and then but, you actually have a conversation. And then you actually have a conversation, or look at the world, or outside. look at the world, yeah. or look at the world. There's a wonderful study that shows in only five days at a at a at a device free camp. You know, empathy levels come right back. Mm-hmm. So the things that empathy levels that have been depressed mm-hmm. because we're not taking the time to have the conversations that or where we learn empathy. And you know, it's very it's very moving that the that the cycle psycho- that the team that um did the research that showed the depression of empathy levels in college students was so upset by their findings that they had dropped by 40% that they went out and started to develop empathy apps for the iPhone. Right. But, but but we are the empathy app, <laughs> right? Conversation, I mean, can, right? Can technology really replace that? Yes, yeah. we are the. I mean, to that, mm-hmm. to that, I you know, I, this is a very talented group of people, and Sarah Conrath, who's the was the lead author. I mean, she is a very talented psychologist, mm-hmm. and I, I, I understand the motivation. That's a very depressing thing to find that empathy levels have dropped by forty percent. But people are the empathy app, you right. know, to the. To the disconnections of our digital world, you know, conversation is the talking cure. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Very terrible. Next up, the business world is a buzz over Silicon Valley unicorns. These are companies that are valued at a billion dollars or more. Well, valuations of privately owned tech companies are sky high. They haven't necessarily been holding up when those companies go public. I'm joined by San Francisco correspondent Leslie Hook and Sujit Indap, who writes for the FT's Lex column, to talk about whether the tech unicorns are really just fantasies. Hi, both. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Good to be here. Leslie, you've got a piece in the FT this week, which I encourage all of our listeners to read, um, that brings up some new questions over the valuations of some of the big stars of Silicon Valley. And so in one case, you talk about the payments company Square, um, which announced its price range recently for its upcoming IPO. And its former chief operating officer tweeted that the steroid or era of startups is over. What happened? Thanks, Shannon. We've been seeing these headline valuation numbers get pushed up and up and up. Uh, but the truth is these figures don't really mean anything. I mean, these big numbers that get thrown around saying that Uber is worth $50 billion or Airbnb is worth $24 billion are not actually the enterprise value of these companies uh, at all. And the reason this has happened is that, you know, companies like having big numbers and feeling successful and important, and their prior investors definitely don't mind either if their portfolio companies uh, appear to be doing well and grab lots 
of headlines. Um, but this becomes a problem uh, when companies can't live up to those valuations and can't grow into these big numbers and and big uh, expectations. And we've seen that um, in the private markets just the last couple months when a couple uh, companies, right, that where we've seen the values actually come down. That's true. Well, the the valuations of, for example, of Dropbox and and Snapchat the, have been marked down by some of the mutual funds that hold shares in those companies and have to publicly report uh, and mark you know mark to market uh, their holdings. Um, and we've also seen these big headline valuations become a problem when it comes time uh, to IPO uh, because the those numbers uh, that got thrown around don't really match um, the enterprise value that these companies can merit in the public. Public markets. So, Sujit, what's happening in that private and in the public market um, when when these companies are going public, and then other pu- public tech companies? What's happening to their values? Yeah. So, there was a time when an IPO was a real milestone. You liked uh, the pomp and circumstance of going to the stock exchange and ringing the bell, and it was uh, a signal that you had really arrived. Right. You, I mean, uh, you made it. You're there. Yeah. Exactly. You're a public company. Therefore, you uh, must be successful and are going to be around for a long time. Uh, but the reality is uh, being public uh, has a lot of downsides to it. You have to report earnings every three months. You have to deal with shareholders, activist shareholders who uh, are pressuring you to make profits or change your business model if they don't think you're successful. I mean, you look at a company like Twitter, uh, went, uh, went public a couple of years ago to a lot of fanfare, and now it's really struggling. It, it needs to execute a turnaround um, and it's, and it's really being it's being compared in a lot of cases right, to Facebook, right? Which that's right because which is, that's also another public tech company. Yeah, and even Facebook though is they a huge success. Be... Yeah, exactly. And its uh, market cap is over three hundred billion dollars, and uh, it really is held up as the example of a of a startup that did well in the public markets. The problem for Twitter is that it needs to execute this turnaround, but with having to report every three months, shareholders are going to get impatient. And uh, if they were a private company, let's say like what Dell did. Uh, who also needed to execute a turnaround. They've done that uh, in the private uh, markets. And so being uh, held accountable every three months just isn't uh, the right model for some companies that need longer to uh, to fix themselves. Leslie, is there a sense that, that it is these concerns over over what has happened in the public markets affecting the valuation of the, of the private companies? I mean, I think that the private companies here sort of look at what's happening to Twitter and think, well, we don't really want to go through that and and we don't want to be under that close public scrutiny that Sujit mentions of you know reporting a quarterly earnings um, when we're going through a turnaround um, phase and and um, you know the the thinking here is sort of why why go public when you can stay private I mean as long as you can still raise money on the private markets uh, then it's easier to g- grow fast and to be heavily loss making which is what we see for a lot of companies here, um, and when you're when you're private, um, but the challenge is the longer you stay private, and the higher your headline valuation gets, then the more painful it can be when that headline number intersects with reality in the event of an IPO. So the, in these cases, I mean, even before we're getting to IPO with some of these companies. Uh, it's it's still actually quite difficult to figure out what they're really worth, right? So, I mean, we see these big these news stories come out about you know that you know Uber is has raised another couple billion and its valuation just keeps going up. But but you talk about the, they're actually it's not so easy to to re- to recognize what the true valuation of of a company like Uber or or Snapchat is. 
Yeah, it's very, very hard. I mean, in public companies, you can more or less take share price, multiply by number of shares, and you get market cap, you know, add the net debt, and there's your enterprise value. For private companies, that does not work at all. And one of the main reasons is that there are multiple share classes. Uber, for example, has nine classes of preferred stock and then two classes of common stock. So they have this huge stack of different shares that act in very different ways. Um, uh, you know, some of those shares could have uh, different liquidation preferences. They could have certain guarantees, uh, maybe some type of guaranteed return above the share price. Um, and all of those those conditions that are attached to those different share classes mean mean that shares in different classes are worth different amounts. Um, so the the sort of easy model that applies in 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 public markets just just doesn't work here. Um, and another reason it's so difficult, um, you know, sh- setting aside the multi-class share structures, is just that, um, you know, these companies are, a lot of them are making losses, and some of them haven't even really figured out their revenue model. Like Snapchat has been... They got rid of their sort of initial advertising model, right, and are, are, are in the midst of replacing it. Exactly. But, you know, what are they replacing it with, and how are they... How are they making money in the meantime? I mean, they haven't answered those questions. So without, you know, clear revenue projections, it's very hard to build a sort of classic model that's based on, you know, a revenue multiple or something like that. So what's happening to the employees of these companies? I mean, clearly they're investors who, because they have these guarantees, are poised to do really well. But wasn't part of the appeal of going to work for a startup that you had the potential to do really well off of your stock options? Exactly. It's been, you know, the employees are at the very bottom of the stock, of the stack. The employees are at the very bottom of the stack of these, you know, multi-class share structures because they have common stock. Um, and Square is kind of a, a good example of uh, what happens to um, those options uh, that employees have. Uh, at Square, you know, the, the midpoint of the indicated pricing range is $12, which is below the option levels that employees were granted over the past six months. So basically, if Square were to go public at $12, all the options granted to employees over the last six months would be, you know, not really worth much at all. So Sujit, we've seen these companies stay private for so long. Is there any sense now that that some of these now changing valuations, decreasing private valuations may actually push them to go public? Are we going to see like any more IPOs in the pipeline or are they still being really cautious? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. So the VCs who are uh, holding these multi-class private shares uh, perhaps are going to start to get nervous and may want to just uh, take their money and run through an IPO. The question is, uh, when they go public, uh, the valuations could be very ugly, and that's going to lead to uh, unhappy employees whose waters are uh, underwater, as Leslie alluded to, and so do they leave, and then you get into the situation where you're a Twitter and you're public, and you've really got uh, no place to hide. So uh, there's a lot of uh, potential pain out there. Uh, it's interesting, the pain right now seems to be concentrated amongst VCs and private uh, private shareholders. Uh, so this is a little bit different than the dot-com boom when there was a lot of public companies that right, went public. So, so those the, companies were public. Right, so it's a different uh, type of shareholder who's yeah. going to feel the pain. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe it's better that a more sophisticated, deeper-pocketed uh, investor group is going to is going to be hurt more here. Leslie, what did the what did the observers you talked to say they expect to happen to overall to valuations of private companies over the next year, year and a half? 
Well, the, you know, the private markets are not as efficient as the public markets. Some people argue the private markets are not efficient at all. Um, I mean, I think they are efficient, but like over a much longer time period and sort of in a different um, way. So I think the, you know, the expectation here is that some of the uh, air and the hype may start to deflate out of these headline numbers. And I think that people are also going to start talking differently and using a bit more skepticism um, when these headline valuation numbers come out. Because at the end of the day, they're basically marketing figures uh, and not much more. We need to make sure to, to always puncture that advertising bubble. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Leslie Hook and Sujit Indap, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, thank Shannon. Thank you very much. And finally, a few weeks ago, Cardiff visited development economist Esther Duflo at MIT to discuss her latest findings in poverty economics. You can listen to their full conversation right now on our sister podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. But I'm going to play a short excerpt for you where Cardiff asked Ms. Duflo how economists assess the impact of foreign aid in addressing global poverty. You wrote a book you published almost five years ago called Poor Economics, along with your frequent collaborator, uh, Abhijit Banerjee. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, close enough. It emphasized local solutions to local problems. So, for instance, an idea to fight poverty for Kenyan farmers might work in Kenya, but it might not necessarily work for people who live in rural India, right? And one of the more trenchant critiques that the book made was that foreign aid um, isn't often sufficiently studied to see if its results actually are there, in other words, if it's actually working. Um, So I guess one question I have is whether in the time since you think that policymakers and economists have gotten better at studying the impact of specific ideas uh, with respect to foreign aid and especially with respect to fighting poverty. So first of all, I should say that it's not just uh, policies that are done, that are paid for with foreign aid that are not very well implemented, or n- not very well implemented, that's one problem, but evaluated <laughs> is the right. one that we emphasized. Uh, it's not just foreign aid. It's, domestic uh, policies. Domestic well. policies in rich countries and domestic policies in poor countries. In a sense, the debate on aid is a little bit uh, besides the point uh, because... Um, Aid is not a very important fraction of the amount of money that is being spent on the poor in developing countries anyway. Uh, in a country like India, aid represents about zero of the budget or so close mo- to most that. Of these, uh, most of the money that's spent is domestically allocated? Most of the money that is being spent, and that's true for India, it's true for China, but it's even true for most countries in Africa that mm-hmm. it's only a, a very small part of the budget of the poor countries that is being spent on the poor comes from aid. Most of it comes from resources that are raised locally. So one of the the message that we, we try to emphasize with Abhijit Banerjee in the book is, is that in a sense, we should just stop talking about aid. It's not such an interesting question because it's not going to be a very important part of the solution and it's not going to be a very important part of the problem either, even if it's bad in a sense. Now, so if it was only aid that was not evaluated and the rest of it was really well evaluated and you know maybe we we could study something else but the issue that we have in public policies in rich countries and in poor countries uh, with equal opportunity is that no policy is really evaluated or very few are that's problem number one and problem number two which is related is that uh 
the policies are often designed um, on the basis of uh, some ideology about how we think the poor live and what we think the poor poor's problem are um, in ignorance of the reality in the field and uh, then tend to stay in place out of sheer inertia. That's what, that's what we call the three I problem, ideology, ignorance, and inertia. That doesn't characterize just developing countries. I think that characterizes just um, just as much, but we happen to work mostly on developing countries. Um, so how do we fight the three I? I think it's by trying to instill a culture of learning and experimentation within governments. So it's about evaluating programs. It's about trying to draw lessons from what has worked and what has not worked and why. Uh, but it's a little more than that. It's also trying to maybe not as a business as usual where you have to go fast and, you know, you're a government, you have to run the shop, but uh, maybe on the margin, etc., have a, a culture of experimentation and trying out new things sure. and then being a bit more, you know, risk-loving maybe on this to try to come up with more innovating, interesting policies. Now, your question was that, have we made progress since the book was published about five years ago? And I think we have, frankly. I think that um, you can see uh, here and there cropping in you know, individual places and countries and departments because it does depend on personalities, in a sense. Sure. Efforts, really impressive efforts to, to be creative in the policy space and to draw lessons from what has worked. And now it's time for our follow-up segment. I'm joined by Amelia Mahasek. Hey, Hi. Shannon. Hi, Amelia. I'm not going to get too stuck into Cardiff while he's away. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Of course not. We just have to keep him on his toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, now that he's um, uh, aging, as he was most concerned last <laughs> in last week's episode, when uh, he and Amy visited the aging lab uh, at MIT, uh, we have to be slightly kind. Um so, in fact, let's start talking. Shall I start on that? Yeah, that was yeah. my. I, I mean, I thought that was a fantastic segment. I loved Joseph Coughlin's optimism about the future. Um, as he said, there's not much choice. There's not. <laughs> That's true. We, we're going there regardless. So. Exactly. Uh, I was slightly reminded of. Um, a TV series called Humans where the robots look after the humans in the future. And <laughs> that definitely a, feels the way we're going. Yeah, and there's a nurse that then reports into your doctor if you ignored her and didn't take your pills in the morning and that kind of thing. But still, I'm looking forward to the robot age, particularly driverless cars. Um, this can't come soon enough. I don't need to be old for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Bring in the robots, I say. The thing I was really interested in is the concept of retraining as you get older. Okay. So that the workforce continues to function effectively. And I mean, there was one aspect of what Joseph Coughlin was saying was that because consumers are getting older, there'll be more demand for the servers of these consumers to understand them. A bit like the movie, The Intern. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he, he said something really cool like, uh, you know, your next interview will be for a more junior position for it, but the older person who interviews for it will have nice shoes 
which they will have bought during right. their, their life. But they won't necessarily <laughs> be looking for a big salary. They'll just be looking for a salary to remain employed in the workforce. And I really like that idea. It really appeals to me, particularly working uh, online and with new technologies every day, new apps, and in a way partly being surrounded by uh, young, amazing, beautiful people like Amy in their 20s <laughs> who are early adopters and a digital generation at the same time as being delighted to see older workers coming to online and digital with a very fresh approach and interest and enthusiasm for it. So I like the idea that it's um, age neutral. Right, we shouldn't be writing people off. Yeah, exactly. No, I think it's a good point. Actually, I was doing some reading um, for another piece I was working on um, around hidden bias and conscious bias. Um, And one of the things that's driving companies to try to rethink diversity of all kinds is that they realize that their workforces need to look like their customers and it's not just about uh, you know race and it's not just about gender it is also about age as there are more and more older, older consumers you imagine that's going to become more important mm, so a hopeful idea in, in any <laughs> case thank you amelia thank you Shannon. do you have a recommendation today Yes, so on the note of feedback, um, the book that I'm reading at the moment, which I haven't completed yet, is a fiction of Elena Ferranti, who I believe you're familiar with. I have. Um, read a few of them. So I, the New Yorker calls her Italy's best-known, least-known contemporary writer. Uh, I wonder if some of the intrigue about her books, which are set in Italy in a particular period, and there's a lot of... Uh, so far in the book that I'm reading, the first of the series, My Brilliant Friend, quite a bit of violence and rawness of daily life. Right. And I find that attractive. The other thing I find, I say attractive, you know, interesting to read. Um, and the other thing I find intriguing about it is that Elena Ferranti is a pseudonym. Right. And so there's there's actually some skepticism. Maybe she's not even a woman. She is that right? Oh, there's, there are some theories. I think, I think most, I don't know, having read the books, I think she's probably a woman yeah it well seems pretty clear but the characters that come to life the most are the girls absolutely the feature at the beginning so it just seems to be able to he she able to get into the mind of a young female so it feel it seems very personal so there are four of these books and i gather that uh days of abandonment which is part of the series is uh one of the best of best read certainly around the world so that's what i'm focused on for the next week anyway excellent well you have to come back and tell us if you ended up reading the whole series yeah well you you're ahead of me i think so uh, you, t- you which speaks well of the fact that i should keep going so the book i'm going to recommend is america's bank by roger lowenstein who's a well-known highly accomplished uh, financial writer i was fortunate enough to attend a book reading last night uh, america's bank Uh, is about the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And what's interesting is much of the debate uh, about establishing the Federal Reserve in the early 1900s really mirrors the debate we're having today about central banks and are they too powerful and uh, do they really hurt the interests of of Main Street. So uh, the book is about something from 100 years ago, but all the lessons seem to apply very much today. I just finished uh, Ashley Vance's uh, profile of Elon Musk, which was uh, every bit as good as I expected and and then some. Uh, it was just really riveting read, um, really interesting story. And I think the examples of Tesla and SpaceX sort of go, um, you know, point to, to some of what we're talking about, about this tension between public markets and private markets. You know, SpaceX um, is private and will be private 
for uh, quite some time. And Tesla is public, but its share prices have yo-yoed. And what are you reading? I wanted to recommend um, a piece in the New York Times by the actor Aziz Ansari, um, who people might know from Parks and Recreation. Uh, he was a, a great character on that show. Um, he's a stand-up comic. Um, and he has a new TV series on Netflix, speaking of streaming, mm-hmm. um, called Master of None. Um, it's a bit it's, – it's, it's sort of – it feels semi-autobiographical. It's about an actor in New York and his group of friends. It's very much sort of in the mold of Louis. Um, the Louis C.K. show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really good. I've been watching the show. And he had an op-ed this week in the New York Times uh, about acting and race in Hollywood. Um, he himself is, is Indian. His parents are Indian. He's, he grew up in the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's it's still in 2015, you know, pretty unusual to see you know, one or more minorities as the, as the leading roles in a show, in a TV show or in a movie. Um, and his show, I mean, first of all, he stars in it, but it's also, I mean, the whole cast is fairly diverse. Um, but he writes, he wrote this, you know, really interesting piece sort of about his experience. And he's a pretty successful actor. He's Mm -hmm. had a, had a great career and he's, but he talks about how he still too often is going into auditions for, roles that are very much sort of minority stereotypes, um, where he's going to play a cab driver or a convenience store owner where he's asked to do an accent. um, And he's really uncomfortable with that. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, he cites this recent report um, from UCLA that only 16.7% of leading film roles go to minorities. And the numbers are even lower on TV, about 6.5% of Mm. broadcast TV leading roles. And so there's a lot of attention being paid to shows like Empire, um, which is on Fox and is fantastic and features an African-American cast. Quantico, this new show on ABC that has a Bollywood star and its leading role. And people are talking a lot about how great it is that there's so much diversity on TV. And there certainly is more diversity on TV. But, you know, his point uh, his point is, as far as I know, black and Asian people were around before the last TV mm. season. And there's still a long ways to go. Well, I guess it comes down to perhaps commercial power, to going back to our age discussion. Yep. Um, and once the commercial power is there, once they have money to spend, you know, better or for worse, um, that's when big companies start to pay attention, including big media companies. Exactly. And uh, so, you know, I, 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 it's a very cynical way of looking at it. But no, but that's how these decisions get made. And and I mean, the point is, if you're thinking about what an everyman is, you know, in, in America in 2015, you know, it's it, it's it does feel really outdated, actually, to say, well, it's a straight white man. But so much of our media is still reflecting that back to us, and mm-hmm. it, it's still at the same at the same time that uh, that the commercial powers that be, the advertisers who are funding a lot of this, they want to be of the moment. They're also incredibly cautious, and we see them moving very slowly. So, well, I steps. think you know, as three women sitting in the studio, that we should take some pleasure from this Absolutely. new commercial movement that's upon us. Absolutely. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what you'd like to hear us talk about on future shows. Uh, Tell us where you keep your cell phone at night. Go to ft.com slash alpha chat for show notes, links, and other goodies. Send us a recommendation. You can leave us a message at 917-551-5012. You can email us or record a voice memo and send it to us at alphachat at ft.com. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. Or you can tweet Cardiff at Cardiff Garcia. 
Amy Keen produces our show. I wish she could produce my life. And that's all. We'll see you next week. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brian, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.